The Art and Science of Changing Minds. This on a special episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. You've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science made their life. Welcome to another episode of Ask Science Mike. It's the weekly podcast where I answer questions about science and faith and life. I'm your host. I'm Mike McCarg. The internet calls me Science Mike. It's a long story. I'm your basic college dropout, de-ordained, non-expert who answers questions for a living. If this is your first episode, I'm sure that's super confusing, Um, but I have made a discipline of researching things to check my own biases and trying to do that well and being honest in answering questions in public and talking about things that are difficult to discuss in our world, things about spirituality, about where we find facts and truth in our world, about how we create a world that's fair and just and equitable for everyone. We talk about sexuality. Uh, Ask Science Mike is... Your show, it's a place where the question you've always wanted to voice, but there's been a place or there's been no place where you've been allowed to do so. This is that place. It's a judgment-free zone for questions. And then I just give my best answer that I can. Uh, Sometimes those answers I think are pretty good, and sometimes I think they're not very good at all. Uh, But what I can tell you is I will respond to every question in a non-judgmental way with great empathy and compassion, and an honest answer. And uh, before we kind of run into this week's special edition, I did have a a couple of things that I want to tell you about. Uh, One is uh, there's a lot of events on the calendar, uh, but not on my website yet. (laughs) So I have a lot of dates booked that aren't on my website yet, but coming up very soon are a few you'll want to know about. Um, August 25th, I'm going to be at St. Andrew's United Methodist Church in uh, Highlands Ranch, Colorado. That's a suburb of Denver. So all you Denver friends, I'd love to see you uh, at Evensong at St. Andrew's United Methodist Church, uh, which is a place I've been before. Got great friends there. Looking forward to seeing you all August 25th. Um, October 5th and 6th, we'll be in London for the Liturgist Gathering. That's going to be me and Michael Gunger uh, hosting that one. So if you're in the London area, we'd love to see you. And then uh, if you've been listening about our Ken Men Retreat, K-I-N, a retreat for men to redefine what masculinity is, that event is sold out. But if you were wanting to go, you can go and get on a list to be notified when the liturgists do retreats. Retreats are very small events for us, 30 people or less. Uh, to really get to know people and work through uh, not just topics, but like how to live a life well. Uh, So those are three events I'd like to tell you about. And then, you know, I had this like wild hair that I've been thinking about. Um, And it's because I live in Los Angeles and LA is this giant city. LA uh, county is like 4,000 square miles. The greater LA area includes several massive counties um, and hundreds of m- 
giant metro areas that together create this immense thing called Los Angeles. And, you know, we really do have it all here in L.A. We have oceans, we have mountains, we have surf, and we have snow. Snow is a destination in Los Angeles. It's not weather. Um, And you have the freedom to to be who you want to be, to chase what you want to do in this mild, sunny playground of creativity that catches on fire sometimes, (laughs) which is, to me, it's only flaw, that and the rent. Uh, but other than that, L.A. also has a lot of lonely people, I've noticed. And some of those listen to my podcasts. And when I get your emails and your social media messages, uh, you tell me that you're deconstructed and you're post, post, post-Christian, post-atheist, post-everything, your post being post, and maybe you'd like to go to church sometime. Yeah, I know that sounds crazy to the Science Mike audience. Some people actually do want to go to church, but you have trouble going to church because going to a strange church by yourself is the weirdest thing in the world. And a lot of you have been hurt by church in the past, so there's a lot of fear there. Uh, So I want to do something about that, and I want to do something really small. (laughs) So this is not an announcement that I'm launching a church network or a denomination or any of those things that you ask me about all the time. This is about just going to church together. So I'm calling it Church Together. It's for people in the L.A. area. All you do is go to mikemickharg.com slash church together. That's all one word, church together. Uh, No spaces, no dashes. And if you can't spell my name, it's M-I-K-E-M-C-H-A-R-G-U-E.com. It's basically M-C-H and then the word argue, like we're going to argue about something dot com slash church together and you can sign up all i need your name and your email address and what part of town you live in and i am periodically based on my travel schedule going to email the people on that list and say this sunday i'm going to blank and blank will be a church in the la area that is open and affirming what do i mean i mean that uh, they marry any two people regardless of their sexual orientation or gender identity and they accept those people as church members, and they ordain them as clergy. So any church that uh, I go to, you know that women and trans folk and queer folk uh, are all fully affirmed members of that community in no way uh, you know, structurally set aside or put down. Uh, and that's the qualification for me to visit a church in L.A., with you. So I'll send the email. If you want to go, meet me there. I don't know if this is going to be me by myself over and over, or there's going to be three of us, or there's going to be 50 of us. I have no idea. What I'll commit to you is whatever church and whatever date I announce, I will be at that church and we can sit together so you don't have to feel like you're going at this alone. So it's a chance to try different churches. It's a chance to reconnect with spiritual community, if that's something you're interested in. And then we'll go to lunch afterwards. Uh, That's my plan. We'll pick a lunch spot, depending on how many people come. (laughs) Hopefully, I I mean, I don't know. I'm I'm counting on LA's kind of half-hearted responses to when I do things compared to other places. I don't know that I could even attempt this in, say, Portland or Seattle or Minneapolis, St. Paul or somewhere like that where... Uh, people tend to buy every ticket available for everything I do. But L.A. is a lot more chill. (laughs) So I think in my hometown, 
or the town I live in, I guess my hometown's Tallahassee, but where I live, we can try this. MikeMcCarg.com slash church together. I'm really excited about it. Y'all, I'm a church person. I like church and I care about redeeming church and church won't get redeemed unless people like you start going and don't hear that as me telling you you should go to church i do not care if you go to church and i don't think you're ethically or morally in the wrong if you don't go to church what i'm saying is some of us just like church I'm one of those people. I've had conversations with so many L.A. area people who agree. Um, so that's why we're doing church together. Boy, that was a long announcement. But it's, I'm super excited about this. I've been more excited about this than anything I've done in the last year. Uh, the podcasts are great. And I love your cards and your letters in your emails telling me how much the podcast has helped you through something difficult. But I think it's important to foster in-person community connections because I just see there's a lot of you who feel really heard and known through these podcasts, but never in your actual life. And I can't stand that. I just can't stand it. So I live in LA. So we'll start trying this in LA first. Okay, this week I mentioned it's a special edition. It's because I'm only answering one question, but I think it's like the question right now. Um, and I get so many variations of this question every week in the Ask Science Mike inbox. Uh, I get this asked at events. I get this asked on Twitter. Um, I get this is just a constant question. I get asked this at parties with people who don't even listen to the podcast but know something about me. I have this reputation for knowing stuff. <laughs> I don't know. It's weird for a college dropout. But here's the question. Hey, Science Mike, have you ever changed someone's mind on anything you speak about? Ever? I think you're right on and that everyone else on Earth is crazy. But the only people that agree with me are people who already agree with me. Ha! I've never changed anyone's mind. Ever. Do you think the Holy Spirit has to work their ground, so to speak, before your gentle logic can prevail? You're the best. Me and my liberal women's Bible study loves you for all eternity. Wow, for all eternity. That's impressive. <laughs> um... I got to be honest, I have absolutely changed people's minds on a host of issues and am able to do so consistently. Let me tell you a couple stories. One, uh, a woman came up to me with her wife after an event, and she told me, that before she heard the Liturgist podcast episode called LGBT, she was an evangelical who believed that same-sex relationships were sinful. And then she heard the podcast and started to confront her own assumptions about the Bible and about sexuality, which allowed her 
to admit to herself that she was a lesbian and ultimately led her to meet her partner and get married in an affirming church and now attends a church with a queer pastor. That's a big story of change. Now, does that mean I single-handedly change this person's life? Of course not. But it does mean the work played a role. And I have gotten thousands and thousands of emails and cards and letters and in-person testimonies of people telling me that the Liturgist podcast on LGBTQ, we didn't even know the Q at the time we made that episode, uh, on LGBT issues, um, changed people's minds. Thousands, tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands of people in the world are affirming now who wouldn't have been without that podcast. We did another episode called Black and White. And folks, I just can't tell you the number of messages I get from people who say, you know what, I didn't get race issues in America before that podcast. I thought racism was something we had solved. And then I heard that episode. What can I do? White folks are telling me that. Black folks are telling me that. Uh, Hispanic and Latinx people are telling me that. All kinds of people, uh, both Christians and non-religious people and atheists have all told me black and white change the way they view race and racism. So, yes, I have changed people's minds, and I do so consistently. Um... And it's because, one, I'm an empathetic, natural storyteller, and two, I spent 16 years working in advertising and marketing. So I thought for this episode, I would take you through some of the techniques and strategies that I use intentionally to change people's minds, okay? That's what this episode is about how to change people's minds, the art and the science of that, it is absolutely both. Just knowing the science and trying to apply it without an artful, open-hearted approach won't be effective. Because people are not persuaded by information, full stop, facts don't matter. Wait, did Science Mike just say facts don't matter? No, I actually think facts are incredibly important in making sound decisions. What I'm saying is we are not psychologically equipped to do that naturally. We are not rational, analytical creatures. And the enlightenment assumption that we are is totally, totally misguided. It's unfounded. It's wrong. We are emotional creatures first, and we are social creatures second. And then, then, if those needs are satisfied and satiated, we might use our rational analytical capacity. And in fact, often when we use our rational capacity, we're simply trying to justify what our emotions are already telling us. 
So let's start by talking about advertisers. Advertisers have a brilliant methodology for thinking about decision-making. It's been around forever. It's called the sales funnel. Um, And the most old-school, basic sales funnel shows four stages, broadest at the top, narrowest at the bottom. The top stage in the sales funnel is awareness. Someone has to be aware of whatever you're selling in order to buy it. So if you make the most revolutionary pair of socks in human history, you have changed the sock game. These are the most comfortable socks, most supportive socks, uh, really economical. They're long-lasting. They prevent microbial growth, and you know they make you jump a foot higher whenever you wear them. Whatever amazing thing your socks do, no one can buy your socks if they don't know they exist. So your first step is to take people who aren't aware of you and make them aware of you. That's why awareness is the first step of the funnel. Then once people are aware you exist, you have to get them interested because you're not the only sock maker in the world. Let's be honest. People are going to say, why would I buy your socks when there's Fruit of the Loom socks? If I want cheap socks in a giant bag or Gold Toll socks, if I want something a little fancier, uh, whatever. Uh, you have to get them interested. You have to start telling them why your product is different than all the other products they're aware of. And a huge part of marketing is not only giving you awareness of a product, but letting you form an interest in this product. Think about the ads you see, right? Apple does this all the time. Look, we have a new thing. We want to make you aware of it. But we also want to make you interested in it. It's not enough to know the HomePod exists. We want you to be interested in buying one. So after you become interested, the next step is to get you to make a decision to purchase, a desire. Sometimes it's called intent to purchase uh, in newer versions of the sales funnel. Um, And why this is a separate stage from purchase is because if someone has made an intent to purchase someone else's product but hasn't done it yet, you haven't lost your sale yet. That's why action is the last step. Decision or intent is the third step, and action is the last. In our thing we're talking about today, the action is changing their mind. Now, why does this matter? Because marketers know that a given prospect, a person who has a potential to take an action, their propensity or likelihood of taking that action is dependent on where they are in the sales funnel. There is no point spending money uh, with a message that drives action to people who aren't aware of the product yet. It won't work. But people who are aware of the product and you create an interest, now we can drive that intent and action message. And that means uh, I understand in my work in this podcast that, A, not everyone is a prospect at all. Some people just won't go into my, what I call a decision funnel instead of a sales funnel at all. They're going to sift out automatically. Who would be someone um, who would be very unlikely to be a prospect for the kinds of things I talk about on this program? 
uh, someone who is a young earth creationist who thinks science is a lie from the devil. They're just not a prospect for my work. So I don't worry about trying to convince that person of anything. Someone who thinks um, Donald Trump was sent by God to redeem America. Probably not a prospect. That doesn't mean Trump voters or Trump supporters don't listen to Ask Science Mike. They do. But the ones who keep listening are the ones who have a complex or nuanced stance on Donald Trump, you know, that they thought Supreme Court justices were very important because they're pro-life, and so they support Donald Trump, right? Those people absolutely listen to the show and might be uh, same-sex marriage-affirming, for example, but, you know, also pro-life. Um, and I would also say people who are pro-life who listen to Ask Science Mike tend to be more holistically or comprehensively pro-life. They don't just want to like block abortions. They care about welfare for children. They care about uh, a social safety net. Right? It's a comprehensive pro-life stance. That is a different position. Those folks are absolutely kind of in that awareness stage of my decision funnel um, on, on many issues. But so I understand it's a numbers game. So the Liturgist podcast, for example, when we did LGBTQ, I knew who were at different points of the funnel, right? People who were, oh, they knew the Bible and they knew their interpretation of the Bible, but they also saw some hurt in the world from a, quote, traditional, unquote, teaching on sexuality. Those folks, we can make some progress, right? So it's a numbers game. And it's one thing you have to do is develop the capacity to understand where someone is in their decision process and whether they're a prospect at all. Uh, how hard is that? Well, it only took me 16 years of full-time work to get great at it. <laughs> Doing it at scale. It's not easy, but just think about sales funnels and decision funnels. So once you thought in a funnel context, the next thing you do is you speak in the person's language. You speak in their language, not yours. You don't bring your cultural assumptions and your subcultural ideas into the conversation. You speak in their language. When I answer a question for someone who is obviously um, an evangelical Christian, and there are many evangelical Christians who listen to Ask Science Mike, um, conservative evangelicals are a similar slice of the audience as atheists, um, both of which make up a a solid share of this program. By the way, I'm super proud of that. (laughs) Find me another media channel where people who self-identify as atheists and conservative evangelicals show up in equal numbers, I'm not aware of any. So um, I speak in their language. So when an evangelical asks a question, uh, I don't say like my subjective perception of the divine. I say God. I can honestly use those words interchangeably, um, but I, I speak in language that is familiar to them 
because that's comforting and it shows I care about where they are. Um, I don't do this duplicitously. I never uh, try to project that I believe something I do not, for example. Um, I make it obvious that I hold a different view of Scripture than most evangelicals do, but I emphasize that I also value Scripture. Do you see? I look for common ground, and that's part of speaking someone's language. And my next point is searching for common ground. What can you agree on? Are people loved by God? Can you both agree on that? If you're not a person who believes in God, don't go there. But can you agree that all humans have inherent dignity and worth? Scope out as far as you can to search for common ground, because the more someone can say yes, the more they can nod to what you are saying, the more cognitively and psychologically primed they are to keep saying yes as you go as you kind of push them a little bit, right? If you're gradual in this process where agreement, 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 a lot of people just kind of get in this zone where they become more accepting. It's psychology. It's cognition. And one way to do that is to ask open-ended questions. So how do you know what you hold in common? You get people talking. One of the most powerful ways, and it's hard to do on podcasts, Uh, but you see me do it in person all the time, is you ask them questions. Uh, And you do this in a non-threatening, non-judgmental way. And it doesn't matter how morally revolting you might find their stance. If your goal is to change their mind, if that's your goal, then a non-judgmental, receptive posture as you ask questions will help. Now, this, is, this work is not for everyone. I talk to people in the incel community and people in the alt-right. Why? Because I'm, I'm safe to do so. I'm a straight white man. My emotional, psychological, and physical safety are in no way threatened by even the most extreme elements of those communities. That means it's my work. What I, Don't listen to me saying how to change minds as a way of censoring women telling them to go into unsafe spaces in advocacy. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying if you are in a position where you feel like you have the opportunity to change someone's mind and you can do so without jeopardizing your safety, that's the context I'm giving these tips. And in that context, open-ended questions are incredibly powerful in helping you search for common ground and in speaking someone's language. They'll reveal to you their linguistic norms as they answer the questions. Adopt them, use them without being deceptive or hypocritical. That's when you think of like the used car salesman archetype, um, and my apologies genuinely to any honest and ethical used car salesman who are listening. Uh, But that archetype, that slick, will say anything to get the sale, uh, that doesn't create durable change for folks that just makes you look like a jerk so honesty and integrity are critical in this process Uh, so you're you're thinking about a funnel you're speaking their language you're searching for common ground you're asking open-ended questions and now as you start to identify points of difference in your opinions and in your stances give people a means to claim a positive 
self-image, and a way out. What do I mean? Well, first of all, positive self-image means complimenting people. Wait, what? Yes, complimenting people. When I have conversations with white people who have obvious and severe racial prejudice and racism, um, I look for opportunities to affirm their goodness as people. Everybody loves somebody. Everybody will stand up for someone. Um, and I look for opportunities to tell people, oh, man, I know you are a good person. And that, that there seems to be a tension there because I'm so disgusted by racism. But I know, like most people who are deeply racist, that was something that was conditioned into them. And there have some ongoing social pressure, some stratified, indoctrinating, you know, potentially ostracizing if they don't uphold these norms in their communities. And that's why these beliefs persist. Because what we what we say in the beginning, we're emotional social creatures first. People are racist because their culture, their community expects them to be. Why am I not racist? Because if I was racist, my friends wouldn't hang out with me. Now, there came a point when (laughs) I started shifting community because I got more outspoken on racial justice issues and I got more outspoken on um, all kinds of justice issues, all, all kinds of issues of identity, of ableism, whatever. And a lot of people are very uncomfortable and don't hang out with me anymore. But the friends I have now, it's not it's not difficult to name and call out racism in the communities I run in today. Everyone does it. Everyone, all of my friends, including my white friends, are examining their role in systemic and structural racism and examining their personal attitudes. They're doing the same for LGBTQ folk, and they're doing the same in regards to disabled folks. So, social, emotional creatures. That means, in order to change people's minds, we have to soothe the social and emotional parts of the human brain, of people. So that's why I compliment people. That's why I accept a racist person, and I name them as a friend, so that they feel a sense of belonging with me, a person who is extremely opposed to all forms of systemic and personal racism. I'm shifting their sense of belonging to being in with me, and that works below the cognitive level to start changing people's minds. So let's talk about a very common phrase I see all the time. Men are trash. I see it every time I open Twitter. I giggle, honestly. I know a lot of you get really upset, men that listen, um, when you hear the term men are trash, because you're like, well, I'm a man, and I'm not trash. And I don't know. Maybe you're not. I am trash sometimes. I'll, I'll admit it. Sometimes I'm trash. Um, I am more comfortable... Uh, being emotionally vulnerable with women than with men. 
What does that mean? It means on some level, I expect women to carry my emotional burdens. That's a trashy thing to do. But I never say men are trash. Never, ever, ever do I say men are trash. Now, I'm sure someone's going to go quote tweet me and say, Science Mike, you did say men are trash. Okay. I try not to say men are trash. What do I say? I say men have been handed a bad script by society that calls out the bad behavior without making um, individual men feel preemptively ostracized. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not knocking women who say men are trash. Look at me, too. Look at the pervasive rates of sexual assault in our society, the universal uh, sexual harassment in the workplace and in religious institutions. Look at pay discrimination. Look at how many women are in leadership and let me tell you, you can make a great case that men are trash. That statement is necessary to build relief via solidarity among women. It's also a way to keep men from getting on board with women's liberation. So I view my beloved women friends in feminism and womanist movements who say men is trash as vital allies in stirring something up in men that I can then come along later and say, well, he, oh, you're not a bad person. You've been handed a bad script. Do you see? I say, let's, let's not talk about, let's talk about our feelings. That's important. But let's also talk about why so many women would say Men are trash. See what I'm doing? Let's go to an open-ended question and search for common ground. Can we agree in some way that women have a tougher time in our culture than men do? Can we get there first and let's dismantle this emotional reaction to the idea that men are trash? See what I'm doing? Uh, Remember, this is not prescriptive to everyone. It's probably not for most women to have difficult conversations with men about sexism. That's the job for men who are listening to women who are leading these movements. So give people a means to maintain a positive self-image and give people a way out. I'm going to quote an article that I will link on the show notes this week. Um, This is by a scientist turned lawyer. Um, And he says that the key is to trick the mind by giving it an excuse. Convince your own mind or your friend that your prior decision or prior belief was the right one given what you knew. But now that the underlying facts have changed, so should the mind. I spend a lot of energy and time analyzing why I used to believe something so that I can establish why that was a reasonable belief in the context I was in. The way I get people to shift their beliefs on um, affirming same-sex marriage and affirming all sexual orientations and gender identities is because I first explain in great detail, why I used to agree with non-affirming people. And I admit that I genuinely loved and cared for 
the lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans, and queer people in my life when I was a non-affirming evangelical. And that also the beliefs I held were destructive and hurtful in those same people's lives. I loved people and deeply hurt them. I volunteer myself as the worst example first. Because I was. <laughs> I was, gosh, you know, I was so eloquent in my defense of the quote traditional unquote sexuality and traditional biblical marriage. I had so many conversations with gay and lesbian friends. where I compassionately and empathetically told them that who they were was sinful and a choice. Most people I talk to, they might hold traditional beliefs and they might support the institutions that oppress people, but they personally have never had that conversation with someone. I did. Let's talk about someone else, someone else who comes up my newsfeed every day, Jordan Peterson. Every time someone talks about Jordan Peterson in the communities I run in, someone says, Jordan Peterson is terrible. Men are trash. Jordan Peterson is terrible. Um, and then when I express any solidarity or agreement with the idea that Jordan Peterson is terrible, I get 25 to 50 emails from dudes saying, come on, Jordan Peterson's great. You're not giving him a fair shake. You should read his book. First, I've totally read Jordan Peterson's book. (laughs) I read it. I still don't like Jordan Peterson. Um, But I will say Jordan Peterson speaks to common insecurities in men and the sense of alienation and isolation they feel in society right now. So when I talk about Jordan Peterson, I don't talk about how much I don't like Jordan Peterson. Who cares if I like Jordan Peterson or not? That's a completely irrelevant bit of information. What I look for is what is Jordan Peterson speaking to that other people are missing? Right? There's a lot of people who were really, really hardcore justice folk who then, for some reason, felt alienated in justice work. And now are in this like reclaiming of traditional views, but not by Jordan Peterson. Um, And here's why I don't slam Jordan Peterson. If I trigger a defense of Jordan Peterson, I've missed my chance to change someone's mind. In fact, if in a conversation I trigger a defensive posture about absolutely anything at all, I've pushed someone back up the decision funnel. I've just undone work I was doing. It's all about neuroanatomy. When someone gets defensive, their amygdala starts to become active. And they they lose the capacity to listen and be receptive. Neurologically, your amygdala is like a uh like a I don't know, like a an air brake. Um pushing you away from moving forward in your thought. 
I avoid amygdala activation at all cost when I am trying to change someone's mind, which means I dance around things. Now, you would say, I don't want to dance around things, Mike. Then don't. That's fine. It is perfectly okay to be an advocate who creates relief via solidarity and who creates awareness by calling out what is wrong. That is fine. I'm talking about if you care about changing people's minds who disagree with you. If you care about changing minds who disagree with you, which is something I care about, that's a huge part of my work, um, I avoid defensive postures, creating a defensive posture at all costs um, to keep people neurologically respective, to keep them empathetic. And the most powerful way to do that, of course, is to tell stories. If you look at the fastest shift in public sentiment on an issue in American history, it was moving in affirmation of same-sex marriage. How did that happen so fast? What in the world? YouTube. YouTube gave us the opportunity for people to sit in front of a web camera and tell the story about the pain and suffering they faced in life being LGBTQ in our society. What that was like. Maybe they cried. Maybe they gave some story that resonated with someone. They heard, they saw their behavior from another perspective. They saw their attempts to encourage people actually tearing people down. And people change their minds really quickly because of storytelling. Just storytelling. Storytelling is the most powerful human technology of all time. I put it right up there with fire and the wheel, probably above them. We daydream a third of our waking hours, but not when we're immersed in story. When we're immersed in a story, that's the only time we don't daydream at all. Storytelling puts us in another person's perspective. It allows us to see the world through another's eyes. And as it does so, it shuts down our cognitive defense mechanisms. You'll accept ideas told in a story and a narrative you would never accept as an argument or set of information. Storytelling promotes empathy through understanding. It fosters learning. Studies have shown that people who listen to a story and the protagonist learned something, in a couple of weeks, they thought they learned it. <laughs> they forget they learned it from the story because they were so in the shoes of that protagonist. And story actually changes people's behavior and changes their minds. If you listen to me on the Liturgist Podcast, well, all of us on the Liturgist Podcast, we always include all these stories, these vignettes, and I've had people say, Science Mike, why do y'all tell so many stories? Why do you talk so much? Oh my gosh. Because we actually like to change people's minds. A concise summation of information isn't useful in changing minds. If you listen to me, do ask Science Mike, what do I do? I tell some story from my life or a story I've heard from someone else's life to draw people in. And that changes behaviors and minds. Research is clear on that, by the way. They've done the work. They've measured shifts in oxytocin level and bloodstream. They've done behavioral study in conjunction with different presentations of information, including double-blind trials and control groups. The whole ball of wax story works. 
So if you want to change people's mind, stop debating them. Stop arguing with them. Stop laying out the facts before them because you're not talking to someone who is rational. You're talking to an emotional, social animal. So tell stories on the issues you care about. Constantly assemble stories in your mind that you can use. Practice telling them well. Remember that stories have a beginning, a middle, and an end, a three-act structure. And the most powerful stories are told that way, even if that story is told in 45 seconds. And when you start telling stories, you start changing minds, and you start changing lives, and you start changing the world. Think about that LGBTQ episode we talked about. It was almost entirely stories from people's lives. We didn't present a lot of information. When we did, it was in the context of story. We didn't do a lot of debating. We just let people tell their stories of what it was like to be a trans woman in church or what it was like to be a gay man in seminary. And as those stories came out, or, oh my gosh, what it was like to be a straight pastor who started affirming same-sex marriage, people, they put their minds in that perspective. There's story. And it worked. So, here's how to change minds. One, think in funnels. Two, speak in their language. Three, ask open-ended questions. Four, search for common ground. Five, give people a means to claim a positive self-image. Six, give people a way out. And seven, tell stories. And I believe that changing minds matters. We are at a critical moment in history, folks. We are belching carbon into the world, into the atmosphere. We are laying the seeds for our own cultural, societal collapse. Our civilization globally exploits people. We live in an age of profound and increasing income disparity. We live in a world that is, dare I say, broken. And story can change it. So as you go to change minds, I hope these tips are helpful. And um, let me know what I missed or what you'd like me to talk about more. You can do that by going to AskScienceMike.com and sending me a question for the show. I love doing follow-ups. Thanks for listening, everyone, and I'll talk to you next week.